Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Tariq Megadisi. Tariq is a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the ECFR, the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in North African affairs and the politics, governance, and development of the Arab world. He's a regular contributor to the Arab Digest podcast. Our conversation today is about the impact of Putin's war on MENA. Delighted to have you back, Tedek. Thanks, as always, for inviting me to be here. The Putin narrative that the West is to blame, that it is the aggressor and Russia is the victim, we in the West may shake our heads at the brazenness of that uh, claim, but I wonder, how is it playing in the Middle East? I think it's playing a bit better than than people across Europe and the US give it credit for. I mean, look, people in the Middle East and, you know, elsewhere across the global south are are kind of sympathetic to this kind of messaging because it it resonates with their own experiences. Firstly, on this this issue of culpability, um, you know, this is a region, uh, the Middle East and North Africa, where the current generation, their defining geopolitical experience was the Iraq war. Uh, and, you know, the transparent cynicism and the lies and, you know, all of that, which which, which caused this event, which was kind of cataclysmic for the region itself and, and perceived in that way by, by the populations of the region. Uh, and that's not even talking about, you know, all the countless other smaller yet no less horrific war and terror issues that, that people were forced to contend with. Um, so, you know, in the Western world, this whole thing was kind of a nothing, right? You know, it's we've we've brushed it away, kind of filed uh, as an awkward moment from history to be f- forgotten about. But for these people, it's everything. It's, it's their defining, shaping geopolitical experience. And this is the effect of that. You know, it's conditioned an instinct that, that Western actors are kind of devious, hypocritical and aggressive. And, and Russia knows that. And you know, it, it knows that it's it's perceived in a different light, um, despite, you know, Moscow exhibiting much of the same behavior. But look, you know, if we if we go away from the from the he said, she said of the issue, because, you know, the facts of this war are really quite self-evident uh, and emotional issues and emotional triggers are not going to change overnight. This narrative that that Moscow is pushing kind of hits home because it, it, it picks at a raw current experience that people are living through today. Right. You know, those of us from from the region or, or, or who work on the region are by now very well steeped, unfortunately, in, in, in how the Russian disinformation machine works. And, and what it does is it, it aims to open up doubts and, and other fissures in the popular psyche through two main means. You know, you have your emotional triggers, uh, which are exploited, and then half-truths, uh, which are just as devastatingly exploited and we we kind of already discussed the the broader emotional side of it uh, but in this specific instance you know there is a cost of living crisis going on uh, which is hitting very hard uh, and this is already mixed in with with feelings of persecution and discrimination from the from the pandemic years which are still quite quite raw and you know for the dictators who who rule the region uh, their current emotional problem is that they have these huge financial headaches and this huge anxiety that should they be unable to guarantee food supplies or stem inflation, then people are going to start rioting in the streets. So so everybody's anxious right now. Uh, and then, you know, here comes Mr. Lavrov. He, he puts his arm around you and he goes, you know, we know what you're going through. We understand your concerns because, uh, frankly, we're suffering the exact same way. Uh, it's 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 all because of these harsh, unjust Western sanctions. 
Now, you know, again, the, the kind of facts of the situation are, are self-evident. Uh, there are specific exemptions for Russian grain and fertilizer, and this, this price spike was the direct result of a, a very imperialist uh, kind of decision from Moscow to not only war through one of the, the world's bread baskets, but to make a beeline, you know, straight for Ukraine's agricultural and export facilities, thereby blockading this year's harvest um, from, from being exported. And, and stopping next year's crop from being sown. So the half-truth here lies in this idea that, you know, these exemptions, although they do exist, they are kind of difficult to access because, you know, no one wants to do business with, with Russia right now. Uh, the sanctions regime is, is very fluid, and there are huge reputational costs for not divesting from Russia. And then on top of that, you know, there were some major... Russian banks that were excluded from the SWIFT international payment system as part of the sanctions. So it's actually very difficult to, to orchestrate the kind of large financial transactions that you need to secure a, a country's grain supply or fertilizer supply. So the, the Russians are kind of playing on this half-truth and then they, they, they twist it to look more like a whole truth. Uh, and in some instances, they can even you know tie it quite nicely to the emotional side by by saying, look, you know, the, the Europeans gave themselves exemptions from this SWIFT ban so that they could purchase fuels, but they won't do it for you to purchase food. And this is why, you know, the West kind of has a problem on its hands, because Russia is playing a, a long game here. Uh, and what they hope to do in this narrative war is, is, is to build up sympathy from the rest of the world so that the next time there is a, a big UN vote on the war in Ukraine or or when this war really starts to, to bite in Europe over the winter, uh, then Europe and the West will feel more more isolated and, and probably a bit more receptive to, to Russian pressure to halt this conflict in a favorable way to the Kremlin. Now, in, in the current article that you're working on, you quote Hemingway's adage that bankruptcy comes first gradually, then suddenly. Now, considering countries like Lebanon, Egypt, Tunisia, Yemen, Libya, to name but a few, how close to catastrophe is the Middle East when it comes to this issue you've touched on already, which is the food insecurity? Yeah, I, uh, I kind of like that saying. And, and because it, it starts gradually, it can be quite difficult to, to forecast these kind of things. And I mean, in, in general, catastrophe is, is always difficult to forecast, especially in places like the Middle East, which which seems to permanently live precariously, you know. I mean, how long were, were analysts saying that the, the situation in, in Egypt or in other places were untenable uh, before the Arab Spring uh, finally started in 2011? But I suppose what's, what's notable about, about this current scenario is that, you know, so we, we have a set of real financial markers that, that indicate significant concern uh, as to the financial health of, of the region. Uh, as well as anecdotal evidence from some key countries of, of just how precarious the situation is. Uh, and in this case, it's not just one isolated country, you know, like you mentioned in, in, in the question, it's a number of them. Uh, and this creates an additional fear of kind of like a domino effect, should famine, should financial crisis, or, or even just a rebellion against what are these faltering social contracts start in one country, um, then will that example then be followed by the rest? So you're, you're correct in your framing. You know, this isn't just a, a food crisis, it's a financial one. Um, the two most significant countries vulnerable to, to defaulting on their debts uh, in the MENA region are currently Egypt and Tunisia, uh, ironically also two you know, central Arab Spring countries. Uh, and to 
again indicate how, how kind of broad and interlinked the problem is. This number of, of what they would call financially distressed countries worldwide has more than doubled over the past six months. So, you know, something is, is, is clearly wrong and is, you know, you get the impression that a tidal wave of, of sorts is churning and developing. But, you know, as, as kind of is always the case, the, the, the problem presents itself differently in, in different contexts. Uh, I mean, from, from all these cases you mentioned, uh, Libya probably would not have any problem in, in paying inflated costs for, for food prices. But, but does this really trickle down to the people? I mean, in an unregulated environment like Libya's uh, amidst a, a country which is effectively marshaled by, by robber barons and, you know, normal people struggle to, to pay these inflated prices. Um, and then on top of that, you know, the distribution mechanisms uh, to, you know, neglected regions or parts of the countries start to break down as well. And they, this all creates very real strains on, on people's quality of life and it drives discontent and it drives riots, as we saw a few weeks ago. Um, and then at, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have a country like Tunisia, which is going through a real economic collapse right now, for want of a better term. Tunisia is effectively barred uh, from credit markets. It's, it's drowning in debt repayments. Uh, it's struggling to source the foreign currency that it needs to pay for, f for fuel or for food. Uh, and the measures they're, they're currently having to go through to, to just prevent a famine on a monthly basis... Uh, is only sinking them deeper into debt. So you kind of see more problems is almost inevitable there. Uh, and if we speak of the region, you know, vast segments of the populations of all of these states uh, that you mentioned, and, and, and even some more stable ones like, like Jordan or Morocco, they already live in permanent food insecurity. Um, I mean, this kind of what this new wave of inflation has caused is just to turn the screws a bit uh, and to make everything more expensive. Uh, and given the impact of this war on on Ukraine's next harvest and the, the knock-on costs of fertilizer shortages and, and fuel price inflation, this is only going to keep worsening for, you know, at a minimum another year. So probably the real question is is not, are we on the verge of catastrophe? In, in many ways, we are already living through a catastrophe. What the question perhaps should be is, is is how much more can these people take and and what will their attempts to obtain a recourse eventually look like? Mm -hmm. Because the other big immediate crisis is electricity with the climate situation and, and fiendishly high temperatures. Uh, what sort of havoc is that uh, wreaking in these already vulnerable uh, nations in MENA? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and and probably this this problem that you point to here is it's probably the perfect reason why it's so often uh, defined as a as a perfect storm of a crisis or a coming together of, of lots of different crises you know i suppose the the ironic problem with electricity generation and and so on is that it's electricity usage spikes in the heat because you know everybody starts turning on their air conditioning systems um, but at the same time more electricity is lost in in generation and transmission because of inefficiencies due to the heat. So it's actually a double problem. Uh, and, you know, whilst we're, we're talking about ironic problems here, you know, the, the MENA region uh, might be the kind of beating heart of, of the world's oil supply, but they often import uh, the refined fuels that people need to power these power stations. So given the, the increased cost of fuels, 
uh, this is actually heightening that problem too, you know, especially uh, for non-oil producing states and, and, and for these non-oil producing countries, you know, their main source of the, the, the foreign exchange, which they needed to, to buy the fuels, um, which if you'll remember are, are sold on, on global markets in the US dollar. So their source to get those US dollars to buy fuels is, is tourism. And that service has, has thoroughly dried up over the past couple of years due to the pandemic. So this particular issue, as you can see, it kind of encapsulates all of these, um, you know, different cross-cutting problems. Um, you have the, the, the climate crisis, uh, which has not only driven up uh, the demand because of the heat, but it's made generation more difficult because, you know, other power stations like hydroelectric stations can no longer properly function in the, in, in, in the region due to a decade plus um, of, of worsening droughts. Uh, you have the the spike of fuel prices. You have the burden of of what is dilapidating infrastructure, um, and the triggering factor in all of this, which which comes from being unbearably hot, is is because of a reason which is just unambiguously clear to the region's populations as as being the result of corruption and poor governance. Uh, so it really is kind of a, a triggering issue, um, and this hits oil producing countries like uh, Iraq, like Iran, like Libya. Uh, as much as non-oil producing countries like Lebanon and, and Tunisia. And and this has been, you know, a direct cause for protests and for riots in all of these states. So the electricity issue is, you know, for all of these reasons, might actually become the straw that, that breaks the camel's back here. Um, and kind of, sorry, just one last point about all of this is that, you know, the electricity problem actually exemplifies so much of what is wrong with the region itself. Uh, you know, you have poor planning, inequality, neglect, because, you know, what are the states trying to do to, to fix this issue? Uh, as the problem gets worse and they struggle, they, they just buy these big, hugely expensive temporary generators um, because they, they clearly lack the capacity as a state and as a governance institution to plan and to initiate the multi-year programs that would be required to to properly upgrade their grids and maintain their grids. Um, and then as this goes on, the, the population just stratifies into, you know, those who can afford private generators and those who can't. Uh, and if we ignore for the moment, you know, this, the impact on the environment that, that all these extra diesel generators cause, you know, there's, there's still a, a clear problem to see. And, you know, finally, you have you know, who loses the power? It's it's the normal people, it's hospitals, it's shops, uh, street lights go out, but the elite stay comfortable. Um, so all you have to do is kind of look at a city at night. You know, you have produce that is rotting uh, in, in broken fridges at a time of, of food insecurity. Uh, you have all these personal tragedies caused by accidents on the road or, or from what happens when a hospital loses power. Um, and you can see parts of the city remain lit and, and parts don't. And that is probably the most glaring example that you have, that, that the social contracts of the region are, are broken, which is why this electricity problem is a trigger. Yeah, that's, that's quite an image, a kind of satellite image of, of those parts of the cities that have the electricity and, and those that don't. Uh, you know, the, the IMF is often seen as something of a Washington bogeyman or, or a bully, but do you see a positive role that it can play at this time of, of clearly, clearly a great crisis that's going on right now in, in the Middle East? Yeah, yeah. I suppose a lot of people might might recoil or, or double take when, when you speak about the IMF as, as playing a positive role at a time of economic crisis. Um, but, but look, I mean, to be honest, the IMF is just a vehicle, right? It's, it, it's a policy tool. 
So it all depends on, on how you actually wield that, that policy tool. And the, the reason why it's got this reputation and so on is, is because for the past 20 years, the IMF and, and the World Bank alongside, you know, all the, what, what they call the Bretton Woods Institutes have, have kind of very zealously pursued an, what is an economic ideology of, of neoliberalism and, and austerity. And it's, it's been brutal, um, you know, from the 90s, it's been, it's been decimating uh, countries in the region from, from Jordan to Egypt and so on, because there's this, a consistent demand for, for austerity. Uh, and for for targeting what are core parts of these countries' social contract without targeting the real problems uh, that are causing uh, slow economic growth. And because these are just repeatedly attacked, you know, what you end up with in, in every single country is just uh, lower economic growth, uh, higher poverty because subsidies and these issues are removed without adequate replacements. Uh, the corruption and the poor governance, which which causes these these issues um, spikes, because they they no longer have any more blocks, and in fact they have more capital to to kind of eat up and to put in service of their corruption. Uh, inequality stratifies, um, you know, all the basic conditions that we that we see before us today. Um, but this doesn't mean that the IMF has to be like that, or that the IMF can't be useful. Uh, I mean, the IMF is is probably a vital tool in three ways. I mean, firstly, it is a vehicle for distributing large amounts of funds. Uh, and at a time of crisis, this is very important. It's probably the only lender which can simultaneously provide funds and, and build confidence in credit markets to begin lending again to some of these states, as we saw with Egypt uh, a few years ago. And they're, they're also clearly the, you know, the only ones who can actually push through structural changes in some of these countries. I mean, sorry to, to pick on Egypt here, but again, you know, who else have we seen that is able to push any kind of structural reform in a country like Egypt, which is so so authoritarian and, and so closed and so resistant to, to any real change? So instead of just, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater and saying, well, the IMF is just part of the problem, what we should be doing is looking at how we can use uh, the IMF to be part of the solution here. And, you know, this is probably the, the the most pressing moment that that the west has to try to to reform the use of the IMF in this way because you know we have a pretty glaring reason as to why we need to foreground things like stabilization and and economic growth over economic orthodoxy so you know for for rapidly distributing cash um, you know i remember back at the the G20 meeting in Rome uh, during the pandemic, uh, Western states promised that, you know, they would lead the way in, in pledging 100 billion uh, US dollars from, from what they call the, uh, the special drawing rights, which is kind of a pool of foreign currencies, which, which can be used at times of emergency. Uh, and these Western states would, would just donate their rights to this money uh, to, to, to struggling states, which would provide them with kind of a pool of, of foreign cash uh, which they can use to deal with the food and fuel supplies and which they can use without, you know, being burdened with even more debt. Uh, and probably this this movement, this pledge is more important now than it was during the pandemic. And then on top of that, you know, uh, the Europeans and, and the United States, uh, the United States specifically, should use the influence that they have over the board uh, of the IMF and the management and the running of the IMF to, to to start pushing for a methodological change 
in in how the IMF constructs its its development packages and its support packages, which which often accompany the the kind of cash injections that they provide. Um, and this is to to kind of prize governance and and economic growth uh, over issues like uh, like austerity and and reforming kind of support and subsidy mechanisms to the poor and so on. Because you know if if they demanded reform on on issues like ease of business criteria, on on instituting progressive taxation, on you know improvements to the rule of law, and you and you can bring in international metrics to measure this. And in fact, the IMF did this already in Ukraine. Um, if they could take that approach to Ukraine and and bring it to the MENA region, then the IMF can actually help to create healthier economies. Can can target the the kind of obstacles towards economic growth, and and they can then make MENA countries more resilient. Uh, and their economies more resilient uh, against the kind of outside shocks, as we see here with the war in Ukraine, or with the pandemic, or with whatever is going to come next. Which then means that the, the next time we have a war or a crisis, it's uh, yeah, we we can limit the amount of spin-off crises. Now, now you've mentioned Europe um, in the podcasts and articles you, you do with Arab Digest and elsewhere. You you make the critical point that Europe needs to have. Well, something like a brain transplant in the way it uh, it sees uh, the Middle East, North Africa. Surely now is the time. It's almost like a now or never, Tenek. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, just as I don't think it's something that I'll ever stop stop pushing for because I think that the Europeans are capable of so much more than they currently deliver. And you know, just as the MENA region can can seemingly live on the precipice of catastrophe for forever. The Europeans can also seemingly forever um, just survive through a, a policy of a kind of firefighting, of patching, and and just generally sweeping problems under the rug. But but as I said in response to the last question, if if ever there was a time to change, then then now is a pretty good one. Um, you know there is there is real opportunity to be had here, both both positive and negative, in terms of the approach that that would hugely behoove Europeans to take a more proactive and a yeah. Uh, a more thought through and impactful policy at, at this time. Uh, I mean, you have the negative ones, which is, you know, you really want to stop the the collapse of a region. You know, what if we return to another Arab Spring type type scenario? The the state systems are are bankrupt uh, and are unable to source the, the the food that their people require or to keep their the lights on. You know, this will create a real humanitarian catastrophe on Europe's doorstep. Uh, it will also hamper the kind of Need for Europeans to to secure energy from the MENA region to compensate uh, for the Russians and so on. So we're not only trying to stop a crisis, but we're trying to build for the future here. You know, this idea of of creating a bulwark in the Mediterranean region, or or to let me rephrase it, actually, to you know, the Europeans call it the southern neighborhood. Um, so let's create a stronger and a healthier neighborhood, right? Of real partnerships between. Southern European states and, and North African or, or Eastern Mediterranean states, you know, you need healthier economies to have an economic exchange. Uh, and also, you know, you need to improve the, the global food system, um, the economic system and and supporting these states to get through this in a, in, in a way that in turn improves their, their own domestic agriculture, their own domestic economies um, will do wonders to, to create a more robust environment that then frees the Europeans up to engage with threats such as that coming from Russia, but also to to have more resonance and more alignment uh, and more support from the, this region instead of the, this region being, you know, 
almost like a perennial sword of Damocles, uh, where its crises hang over the head of, of Europeans. So, you know, if the worst comes to pass, it's, 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 it's Europe who, who will suffer. Um, and similarly, there is so much to be gained from more effective policy here um, that stems from, from things we talked about uh, with the IMF. Uh, but also, you know, Europe, in, in response to this kind of narrative war, they, they, they flashed the cash and they said, you know, we'll pledge uh, a few billion um, in development and, and in immediate support and so on. But we kind of see the same old story with pledges, right? Much like this, this kind of 100 billion that was pledged during the G20. Uh, pledges have a funny way of, of not materializing when they're needed. Um, and also for an issue like this, you need to be more more focused, more targeted. There needs to be more language around issues such as, you know, we will build resilience, target domestic agriculture. Um, and so more should be done from the policymakers to flesh out what this looks like and, and what they hope to achieve. Because if not, you know, we've we've seen this story before. Any money that actually gets delivered will just get reappropriated by development agencies who are kind of experts in in kind of manipulating or exploiting the very loose language around goals such as re resilience and so on. So there is a real crisis here, so we have to change how we're acting. Now, I'm intrigued, Tarek, about the role that Turkey's President Erdogan is playing, among other initiatives he's going to be meeting with uh, Putin in Sochi a week from now. What do you think could come from that meeting and what do you make of Erdogan's tactics and strategies? How crucial is Erdogan to the project of dealing with this looming crisis or this crisis that's already begun? In some ways, you know, if we if we frame it as kind of the, the point of engagement with, with Russia and um, in managing the Russia-Ukraine part of this crisis, then, then Erdogan is kind of crucial because Erdogan is the NATO actor who probably has the most experience of getting down and dirty with Putin over the past 10 years. You know, Turkey has a very complex and intricate dance, which it performs with the Russians uh, across Turkish issues, you know, around the Black Sea, uh, across the Eastern Mediterranean, across Syria, across Libya. You know, they, they, they both know each other very well and, and they have a working relationship. And I think that was evident in the fact that, you know, it was... It was Turkey that um, that kind of led the push to to get the Russians to agree to this humanitarian corridor in the Black Sea. Uh, just to explain that a bit, it's, it's, it's this idea that the Ukrainians need a channel through the Black Sea through which to export their current uh, grain, um, which they have harvested already, and they have some some twenty million tons worth of it, uh, which the Russians have been de facto blockading, uh, and this is needed to. To prevent these famines and so on that we have discussed, so it was Turkey that that led the push there, and and that shows how important they are as a as a point of engagement. But it also shows the, the limitations of what they can do, because I think the day after the the deal was agreed, the the Russians then bombed the port of Odessa, which was supposed to be the main the main launch point for these exports. So you know, despite the narrative that that Moscow constructs, uh, they still kind of need this. Uh, this famine and these crises there to, to turn the screws on everybody about this war. Um, and I'm not sure how much Erdogan can alter that fundamental calculation. But nevertheless, I think they remain a, a very important point of contact and, and point to kind of try to temper the worst instincts of the Russians by by giving them this, this very clear message to their face that, you know, there are 
some of your allies and some of your partners who are also suffering. Perhaps, you know, Erdogan should do more to, to bring in the likes of the Egyptians who, who are suffering just as much from, from this kind of food uh, blockades and so on uh, as partners in, in pressuring Moscow. But at the end of the day, this, this problem might have been triggered by, by the Ukraine war or by the war on Ukraine, um, but it, it is bigger than the war on Ukraine. So we can't rely on, on one point of contact to resolve everything. Now, you quoted Hemingway, so allow me to quote Yeats from the Second Coming. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. In the Middle East and North Africa, how close to the edge do you think uh, we are, Tarek? Can the center no longer hold? You know, I'm going to have to defer back to my, to my earlier response about the, the MENA region being capable of of permanently living right on on the precipice you know it's like one of those mountain goats you 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 see on the edge of a cliff and you have no idea how it's there and how it's balanced there but it seems to hold um and it probably will do for for a while yet but you know i might make light with the analogy but but we shouldn't be under any illusions of how serious the situation is a lot of what is crumbling not only when we talk today about this current crisis but but when we spoke you know 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago about those crises and those untenable situations that were developing, the thing which gets weathered away and gets eroded is, is your average person's quality of life. So it's, it's the services that they once had access to, which kind of faded away by the late 90s, um, the infrastructure which, which held the state together uh, and the jobs and employment that the state provided, which, which faded away by the late 2000s. Uh, and now you have, you know, your kind of basic everyday things, your food, your electricity, your water. Now all of these are under threat. So, you know, there there is a lot of erosion that happens underneath all of the headlines and, and, and underneath all of the crises that, that get swept under the rug. And I think we just, the policy response is always to, to try to prop things up without any fundamental reform. Um, and, you know, we spoke of of the IMF and Egypt uh, beforehand. And, you know, one of the reasons why the IMF struggles to deal with Egypt is because of the, the all-encompassing role of the military. And we know that, that the United States and that other actors like France uh, also help to, to keep the military as king in Egypt. So that there are larger blocks for our policies. Um, and sometimes I think we fail to appreciate how things which are convenient for, for one aspect of our policy, such as security sector reform uh, or, or ties with you know, other states in the region, then turn to affect other more systemic problems, such as the economy. And at times of crisis like this, it, it, it should all become that much more apparent. So, yeah, I mean, the, the quote holds true. Um, things will continue falling apart until the center can no longer hold. But I don't think we really want to look, we really want to know what it looks like when the center can no longer hold. And, you know, this can, can probably seem a bit like catastrophizing um, to, to those who, who might be listening into this. But it's, it's, it's really a kind of a, a hope for the best, but plan for the worst scenario. Uh, and this is what policymakers' minds should be focused on right now. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Tarek? Because you, you look at the COVID situation, a massive global crisis, and the world has responded. It's still very challenging. The situation in the Middle East, hugely, hugely challenging. And as you pointed out, Europe has a role to play. The IMF has a role to play. Of course, there's self-interest in all of this, but, but a more enlightened self-interest 
could really help uh, to avert this situation. And it is so important, particularly from, as you've made the point, Europe's uh, situation. The neighborhood needs the kind of stability that will secure the Middle East through these very, very challenging and, and harrowing times. Absolutely. And if, if, if I can make one last point on this, um, you know, these are compounding problems. You know, one thing always lead, leads to another. Uh, the situation today is, is worse because of the response to the pandemic and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, and when we see the Europeans kind of respond to, to Russia in international forums and so on, it's always this dichotomy, right? We are the global rules-based order, and this is the hyper-individualistic, hyper-nationalistic uh, project of, of Vladimir Putin. And I, I kind of believe in that image or that line, you know, that we do need a, a global order, because these are global systems, right? You know, over the last... 10, 20 years, we have a, a globalized food system. We have a, a more intricate and, and tightly woven global economy than ever before. So we should really, you know, put our money where our mouth is, put our actions where our mouth is. Uh, and if we, we want to hold up a model against Putin's model or against Xi Jinping's model in the, in the future, then we, yeah, we have to do more to preserve and to improve that model, uh, which means trying to make it more robust and, and, and trying to get to grips with the the gritty details of, of why it's failing, why it's homogenizing, why it's becoming more brittle, so that we can, you know, we started this by talking about a narrative war. Let's substantiate our narrative in response to the Russians and, and, and give them in a region and give Africa and, and give the rest of the world a reason to say, okay, actually the Europeans are our friends and, and they are helping us to to build and to change and, you know, things are going to become more resilient and, and more resistant to, to these shocks uh, rather than always looking over our shoulders waiting for the, the next crisis mm -hmm. great opportunity and, and great danger at the same time Tedek, thank you thank you very much thank you so much it's been a great conversation you've been listening to the arab digest podcast my guest today was Tedek megadisi a policy fellow with the north africa and middle east program at the european council on foreign relations since we launched our podcast in 2020 it's been listened to more than 80,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Tenek. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This is our final podcast of the season. We're back with a new season, 2nd of September. In the month of August, we'll feature the top 10 all-time Arab Digest podcasts, beginning this Monday with His Royal Highness Prince Hassan of Jordan. The podcast is titled Jerusalem. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.